Hi, welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Glad to have you along with us right now. I'm not saying you're a perfect person, but I certainly think you deserve to know what happened this week in a, a convenient, uh, weekly, uh, predictable way. And we do that by bringing together some of the premier journalists in, in the Puget Sound region, in fact, the world. The New York Times bases its technology correspondent, Karen Wise, right here in Seattle. Karen, nice to see you again. Thanks for coming. Yeah, glad to join you. Also with us, GeekWire's contributing editor, Mike Lewis. Mike, welcome back. Thanks a lot. Good to be here. Good to have you, too. Public Cola's police accountability reporter, Paul Kiefer. Paul, thanks for coming on again. Pleasure to be here. By the way, uh, you can see these folks online. Uh, we're live streaming the show, and a listener asked me this week, when are you going to be in the studio together again? Uh, saying not only are your microphones going to sound better when we're all together at KUOW, but it's also going to make some people feel better to know that it's uh, uh, time to be back together again. And the, the answer is we're affiliated with the University of Washington, and we're waiting on their guidelines on being in person. So in the meantime, if watching video conversations does not depress you, you can go to uh, YouTube or Facebook and search KUOW Public Radio and, and watch the show. Okay, let's get at the big news of the week, and we're going to begin again with Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, Seattle-based corporations having a role to play here. Karen Wise, technology correspondent, New York Times, what are Amazon, Microsoft, and other big companies doing? Yeah, I mean, we have huge multinational corporations here, and yeah. they're like pretty much every company that operates in Russia have had to make decisions about what to do. And um, you see kind of a degree of response. Starbucks basically said the licensee that operates the store, the coffee shops in Russia has immediately stopped operating those stores. Um, and then both Amazon and Microsoft have essentially stopped sales of new business there, though neither have fully kind of pulled out of the market entirely. And I think it's real. I've been really interested in reading the um, kind of careful language in the different announcements. You know, um, Microsoft was, I, I think, more forceful in condemning Russia by name, calling it an invasion. Um, they have been very, for a long time now, very publicly um, commenting or ex ex disclosing cyber attacks by Russia. And then you know, Amazon cited kind of the general situation. They expressed compassion for the people of Ukraine, but they also cited limited credit availability in the banking system in Russia as a reason to stop new business there. Um, so you, you kind of see people kind of gingerly tiptoeing. And, and I think broadly, there is this heaving we have of Russia kind of becoming so isolated economically. And then this question of how long does that last? And what are the repercussions of this? My colleagues who cover Russia, who are um, actually temporarily not in the country for safety reasons, um, They've talked about how there's this question of, does it become more insular? Does this create the kind of backlash against Putin to give it popular support, to, to, you know, to, to make him pull out? Or does it do the opposite and create anger that people can't get the types of um, resources, products, availability that they're used to before? And I think when companies make decisions about if they're going to pull out or not, one question is, does this create um, broadly kind of bifurcated economies. There had this idea of this like global internet being good for everyone. But if, if companies, if countries and companies are scared that a company can just shut down their infrastructure, will they start the building their own in-house one? Like we have seen, you know, Russia, I mean, uh, pardon, uh, China basically has an entirely different 
um, entire tech system than we have here in the U.S. So these are kind of a lot going on to make big decisions, essentially, quickly, very, very quickly under public pressure. Before we get to other panelists, Karen, if we just take Amazon, Amazon Web Services, Microsoft, can you say more about what the effect is on their doing things like like suspending new product and service sales and new accounts? How, how does that influence work? Sure. Yeah. So um, Microsoft does have some employees in Russia. Um, it does not have big data centers there. Amazon does not have um, employees in Russia, though they do have, and they do not have data centers there as well. But if you're a developer or a company operating in Russia or you know making an app, anything from an app to a big company, and you want to set up new services to, to, to um, use the cloud, the cloud computing that is like transforming how everyone runs, including the Zoom that we're talking over, mm-hmm. um, they're, they're basically stopping new sales in those companies. So if you are a developer, let's say there, you know, a, one downside would be if you're trying to create a secret messaging app for pro-democracy protesters in Russia, you couldn't spin it up on AWS anymore, for example. But on the flip side, if you are a um, Russian military contractor, this is all, these are all hypotheticals here, you know, yeah. a Russian military contractor, and you wanted to have quicker, more nimble uh, technology, you also couldn't set up a new account. Um, uh, Amazon has said, they do not do business with the Russian government, things like that. These are all hypotheticals, but that's the type of thing is that cloud computing in particular is the future of how company, uh, um, companies, nonprofits, enterprises, small businesses build technology quickly. And um, Microsoft and Amazon are the two biggest providers of cloud computing. Let's bring in GeekWire's contributing editor, Mike Lewis, uh, the, the tech news site GeekWire. Mike, what, what are your thoughts? Actually, I had a couple of questions for Karen, because yeah. I think that the very interesting thing to me is the really kind of equivocating language that Amazon Web Services used, essentially saying, we're not going to open any new accounts because they don't have the capacity to pay us, uh, which I thought was, I mean, if I'm misreading that, Karen, uh, no. you know, correct me on that, but it sounded like this is the whole issue with the SWIFT banking system, correct? I mean, this is the idea of isolating financial transactions for, you know, within Russia uh, from not actually moving externally. And I think that that's what Amazon was, Amazon Web Services was referencing. Am I not, am I correct on that? Yeah. I mean, I think they were talking about credit availability in the country. Um, And you've seen, you know, the crazy levels of inflation limits on people being able to withdraw money from bank accounts, um, you've seen um, major credit ratings saying that um, expecting significant defaults on bonds, on loans, essentially. Um, and it's very I heard the Amazonians that wrote to me after we reported broke the news about AWS not taking new customers. They said this is the most Amazonian statement. Really, Amazon <laughs> tries very hard to exactly. stay out of a political um, political minefield. I mean, it we was will very, not sell know. stuff to people who can't pay us. And it's about the least is, you can say. The language, given the exactly. ongoing situation, it was like a very vague. Again, they have separately expressed support for the people of Ukraine, but that's different than condemning actions in Russia, if that makes sense. And um, we saw this. It was very unusual when Amazon took down par- Parler. Do you guys remember this all yeah, happened? Yeah. The right wing messaging app. Right wing, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
And that was highly unusual. They, they really want to be more of a neutral platform. And what we've seen is that it's very hard these days to actually maintain neutrality. And I think they, they long-term view a neutral platform as a good thing, but there are these moments that have really tested that. So what you caught, Mike, was exactly what a lot of Amazonians raised their eyebrows at and said, oh, this, this is like very classic. I want to bring in public colist Paul Kiefer here, Paul. So I also have a question for Karen. Uh, what would the consequences be of Russia pulling out of its existing contracts as opposed to just cutting off sales? I mean, who are who does it contract with currently? Does it contract with the Russian government? Would that be a serious escalation of, of, of Microsoft's role in the conflict? Yeah, so Microsoft's clients there, a, a lot of it is that, um, like if you have a server, let's say that you're running your operations off of or your website off of or whatever type of things that you might run on a server, your databases off of, um, uh, Microsoft may provide the operating system for that server, for example. Um, and some of those people just own and they buy outright. And there's pretty, I mean, the only way to cut them off would be just to not provide updates to it. It's like if you buy, remember back in the day when you would get like the CD of uh, office or whatever, mm-hmm. but there are people that have licensing agreements. So if they were to cut it off, that would really limit the um, the ability for those technology systems to function. And depending on where you had it, that could be devastating or it could be minimal. It just depends on how they use it. AWS has said that their customers there are, they, that they do not do cust- uh, business with the Russian government and that their customers are largely multinational corporations who have essentially engineering outposts in Russia. Um, it, Russia has a long history of you know strong technical education and so there are a lot of programmers and engineers and development offices um, that have either sprung up there in Ukraine as well, or people who, you know, a lot of people here in Seattle are from the Russian diaspora because of the strength of the technology, you know, employment here and the technology training in Russia historically. So. And has, has Russia said anything, or sorry, sorry, has Microsoft said anything about how, what it's doing to protect its employees in Russia? Are they moving them out of the country or? They have not said anything they have not. And I'm not surprised. It's obviously highly sensitive. And there are some, um, there are these rules about companies needing to have people on the ground. Um, A number of countries have instituted these, they sometimes call them hostage rules is like the kind of human rights term I've heard referred to them. um, I'm not saying that this is why Microsoft has people you know, has people there, is keeping people there. But um, but basically, it's very complicated and extremely sensitive to discuss people on the ground. How unusual or new is it for big tech companies to work so closely with governments? Um, the reason now being the, the, the potential and the fact of cyber attacks, is that, is that a new relationship that you think will continue? Is that important? Oh, I mean, we should have Margaret O'Mara on right now from yeah, UW, from a professor at UW. I mean, yeah. the, the integration between um, technology companies and the government has gone back since the beginning of the tech industry. Yeah. And I don't see that changing anytime by any means. I mean, even some of the, they're just enormous government contracting related to um, cloud computing, cybersecurity, all of that. And it's also a huge business for both for both uh, Amazon and Microsoft. Um, Microsoft in particular has invested really heavily in cybersecurity um, offerings and they've acquired companies and built their own infrastructure and are, are kind of regularly publishing on state level attacks. 
got another question for Karen, actually, while we're while we're since we switched over to, to the idea of cybersecurity, because it seems like Microsoft, uniquely among the three that we're talking about, is heavily involved in the cybersecurity end of things. I mean, it was Microsoft's, I mean, they have one of the best cybersecurity teams assembled on the planet. Uh, they're really doing pretty remarkable work, but that puts them in an unusual place where they are both selling services to Russia and also thwarting Russia. And I'm wondering, have you caught any wind that Amazon, that rather that Microsoft is doing anything to help prevent the sort of like utility cyber attacks that that the that the Russians have sort of perfected in some ways, because you're not hearing a lot about that happening in Ukraine at this particular moment. And I think everyone was kind of expecting that. Yeah, my my colleagues reported a really interesting story about how Microsoft very quickly caught and then was able to disclose to other other technology companies and the government partners um, a, a new infiltration in Ukraine before the actual invasion. So there was essentially a cyber invasion before the ground level invasion, and they pretty quickly were able to close it essentially and um, and alert other people to it. And so right now you're seeing, I think, a, 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 a lot going on behind the scenes that um, you might may learn about later down the line. <laughs> and and um, and I think people have generally been surprised that there hasn't been more cyber um, successful cyber attacks so far, at least that we are aware of so far. There has not been, you know, widespread widespread meltdowns. We've made Karen Wise the host of Week in Review today, effectively. <laughs> with, uh, Everyone asking the New York Times technology correspondent questions. Before we, we do want to cover uh, the other news of the week, as we do on this program. Is there anything, before we leave uh, the Russian war on Ukraine, anything else guests want to tell us? Maybe some place where listeners might want to go that's not obvious to get uh, information uh, about what's going on? I've got one suggestion. I've been reading uh, an economist named Noah Smith. He writes his, his Substack page is No Opinion. Uh, he has been doing, I think, really remarkable, very detailed work on what, for example, what sanctions mean, what the international banking system, what the SWIFT, you know, transactional system is. And these have been great sort of background explainers on all of the terms that that maybe the mainstream media breezes past justifiably because they're doing fairly complicated, longer stories. He is getting into some of the details on this. He seems to be uh, exceptionally well-informed, really well-sourced, and I've really found that his coverage has been terrific. That's what I've been reading. I started following Ukraine like when I began college in 2016 through a, a site called Bellingcat, which is an open source intelligence um, investigative news site. A lot of its reporters are, are ex-military actually. And they were some of the first people, to be fair, they built off of an investigation by a Russian newspaper called the uh, Novaya Gazeta. But one way or another, they were kind of one of the first English speaking outlets to um, cover the buildup of Russian troops in Donbass um, by tracking their social media presences. That's They've the, that's the up, eastern, sort of southeastern part of Ukraine for the right, the part that's been occupied by Russian-backed separatist forces for you know since 2014. Yeah. Um, they've been really helpful since the invasion has started, just like they've been helpful, you know, for the past uh, eight years of war. Um, in that they provide news on things that, or they're essentially fact checkers. I mean, they they will do a you know, an analysis of satellite imagery and social, you know, images appearing on social media to figure out where Russia is dropping cluster bombs or when wow. Russia cited um, an apparent IED attack in near Donetsk as, um, you know, as being uh, incitement by Ukraine 
uh, ahead of the invasion, uh, Bellingcat picked apart the purported video of the aftermath of that IED attack to, to verify whether it was, in fact, what the Russians claimed it to be. Um, I find that immensely helpful because it's hard to verify the kind of speculation about Putin's motives. And it is easier to verify using open source intelligence, sort of tactics that may be significant later, you know, be it something that could risk a war, war crimes trial like cluster bombs or, you know, to just to, you know, get ahead of potential misinformation like like um, doctored videos circulating the Internet. Bellingcat, right? Bellingcat, B-E-L-L-I-N-G-C-A-T. Yep. Okay. There's also I'm I've been reading a publication uh, called the New York Times that is also doing some some decent work. Uh, Karen Wise, anything you want to add before we leave the topic? Yeah. No, Bellingcat. It's kind of I I've been appreciate I am just generally kind of riveted. I actually was in Ukraine in 1999 um, mm. and have been in these train stations that we've seen all these photos of and stuff. So I'm um, I get overwhelmed by trying to figure out if something I see is real or not. So I appreciate the kind of verification work that the Bellingcat is kind of one of the, the, the kind of originals of this idea of what's called visual investigations, where um, reporters take essentially open source content on the internet and a lot of videos, photos, and try to triangulate if they're real or not through a bunch of different um, tactic, tactics and forensics. And uh, Bellingcamp does it. Bellingcamp does it. Uh, the Times has a huge team doing it now. The Post, a bunch of different places do it. And I find it really helpful. So I basically only look at photos and videos that have been through these verification processes because otherwise it's too overwhelming. And then just the dispatches my colleagues are doing and, and other you know reporters are doing on the ground. It's it's just a lot to keep track of. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thanks. Thanks to all of you. And Noah Smith was the economist. No opinion, Mike? Yes, exactly. Okay, well, uh, that's uh, that's just a, a, a look, a brief look at some local connections to the Russian war on Ukraine, and, uh, and and we'll have more. We'll keep in touch for you, and we're going to continue on with Week in Review here in a moment. Take a short break, and um, you can watch the show again if you're on uh, YouTube or Facebook. Just search KUOW Public Radio. We've got the New York Times, Karen Wise, and Public Cola's Paul Kiefer, GeekWire's Mike Lewis, and we'll come back with uh, the dropping of the masks and more when we continue on Week in Review. This is Bill Radke with three of my fellow uh, journalist colleagues helping you through the week in review. Our Washington State indoor masking mandate ends at midnight tonight as we speak, recording this on Friday afternoon. So it's masks optional in restaurants, bars, hair salons, gyms. Puget Sound folks are, of course, ambivalent. My concern is for my kids. Even though, like, medically they said that kids, if they have a COVID, they are low risk they get better, like, faster than adult, but it's still, still I get scared. I don't think we're safe, completely safe yet, but at the same time, I think a lot of people are just tired of wearing them. At the gym, most specifically, because working out and wearing a mask is kind of gross at the same time. That's true if you find your breath gross. It's actually just nitrogen and oxygen and, and CO2, but you will have the choice now. It's up to you. Also, the statewide school mask mandate ends this weekend, and it includes Seattle public schools now. Masks will still be required in hospitals and buses and trains and planes. And Mike, as I said, businesses can require masks if they want to, and you are part owner of a bar. Are you making this decision? Yeah, the decision is, <laughs> it's not, we've, the decision's been made. Uh -huh. I think that the staff would get uh, 
pretty angry if we stuck with the mask mandate. So my guess is that uh, I, I'm leaving it up to the individual. If an individual bartender uh, or cook wants to continue wearing a mask, they're absolutely, uh, if they'd like to, they can. But generally speaking, we're not going to be policing people when they come in for the mask mandate, and we're certainly not going to be requiring it uh, of the employees anymore as soon as the mask mandate is over. Okay, and you don't want your mask wearing, if you have a mask wearing bartender, you don't want them saying, hey, folks, uh, you know, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, you're just, you're done with all that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we're done with it until we're not done with it again, right? Mm-hmm. Until the if the health department suggests otherwise, then we would certainly do otherwise. I mean, we're not anti-mask in any way, but it will be nice to get back to a place that feels a little bit more normal. Uh, everyone on staff has been vaccinated and boosted, and so we're pretty confident that if the health officials are saying we can drop it, then that's what we're going to do. Is that a condition of employment or everyone who's on staff just happens to be boosted? Um, I didn't need to make it a condition of employment because everybody immediately signed up to do it. Okay. So it wasn't uh, it wasn't an issue in our place. Paul, what would you do if you ran a business? Honestly, I would probably keep the mandate in place. I'm, I think, uh, you know, at, at, on a business level, I I don't think I'm willing to risk another surge. I think we've become pretty numb to the notion of, you know, 1,000 plus people dying per day, um, or at least started to forget that that is sort of a a persistent part of this pandemic experience. Um, I would rather not see that number rise above a million, though it feels, or, you know, it feels like that's inevitable at this point. Um, And, you know, I think we can risk the minor inconvenience of a mask for the sake of not having another Omicron surge or something parallel to it. and I also think that it is a minor it is a minor inconvenience that that would allow us to get back to things like you know riding public transit or having in person schooling without you know vastly increasing the risk of another a surge or another variant. Um, but I'm probably in the minority on that opinion. Yeah. Karen Wise, what's most significant to you about mask optional coming up? I've just been interested in the way different businesses and organizations have kind of found their own path. You know, I've seen some say we're, you know, essentially what Mike was saying. I've seen some say our staff will be wearing them. We hope um, guests will wear them, but we're not going to ask our staff to enforce it because that's been a really hard task for a really long time now. And then I've seen some go say we're sticking with it for another month and we're going to make a judgment call when we see how it goes as more things open. Um, my kids' preschool, they don't have to require masking anymore. And they decided they have enough kids who are under five. Um, well, almost all the kids are under five, so we can't get vaccinated. And enough kids who are immunocompromised that for now, they're going to keep the masks on. And the, um, the kids are amazing about it. So I, uh, I think they decide just to kind of stick with it for now. So I think you see a mix of people navigating the kind of stresses. And I've seen some places where the staff want the masks on and somewhere they're done enforcing it. You know, it's kind of a mix. And I, you really get a sense that I don't know if you guys follow the businesses in your neighborhood or whatever on Instagram, but I just see one by one pop up. Okay, here's what we've decided for now. Here's what we've decided for now. Our announcement, our plan sort of thing. So I think we're just going to be in this gray zone for a while as we kind of see a mix and see see what happens on the ground with the numbers. The numbers are luckily back down again. It's really a relief. And I saw this stat, um, I believe in the Times yesterday, maybe the journal about how a huge was more. It was like ninety five percent of Americans now have some form of immunity through infection or um, vaccination. Obviously, really high vaccinations here in the in the region. Um, so that was kind of a stunning to me. So I think we'll just have to just keep a really close eye on those numbers and see how these different options 
play out basically. But yeah, I, don't, I don't begrudge anyone with, you know, if they're our public health is not, has not, our public health agency has not been cavalier. Um, so um, I don't know. We'll just have to keep an eye on it mostly just. Yeah. You have an advantage if you're comfortable in the gray zone, if you're comfortable with, uh, you know, uncertainty and unpredictability, which is which is not a bad way to be to be resilient. But you mentioned Karen mentioned enforcement and Mike, by the way, do you want to say the name of your bar or are you keeping that to yourself? <laughs> you advertise a yeah. bar keeping it to myself <laughs> right uh it's it's the streamlined tavern it's in uh, depending on the terminology you use either lower queen anne or uptown yes okay and have you had karen mentioned enforcement i would think part of this is just man who wants to deal with the people one person being in one part of the gray zone and the other being in another and you're just trying to have fun and and has have, has there been conflict Oh, yeah, it's been continual. I mean, you see, everyone has seen all the videos online of people getting angry about uh, either somebody not wearing a mask or the fact that they had to wear a mask. A, a couple of, I guess during the football season, we had a whole group of fans, uh, guys right around my age, and so that always makes me suspect, uh, Jacksonville football fans who walked in. And, and remember, they're going to an NFL game where they're going to be required to have show vaccination status and wear a mask on the way in, and yet... They wanted to have the argument uh, in the bar. And, and at some point, one of the guys is giving me you know, a little bit of grief. And I said, hey, we didn't fly Washington State to you. Uh, mm. You flew to here. So sorry, this is the standard here. And you're certainly going to need it for the game. And I think getting rid of those uh, confrontations um, is going to be a real reliever on the staff because it was a it was a stress point, I think, more than some people realize. And anyone who's worked in a grocery store or has worked in a bar, who has worked in a restaurant, has run into this. And it is when you put people who are not necessarily in a position of power in a position of authority, uh, it makes it uh, it make can make it really difficult on them. And I think that there most of the public was great, uh, but all it takes is a couple bad people a week or a day, and it can really um, it can really make your work life your work life balance. Uh, it could send it in, uh, you know, over the deep end because it's really it was pretty hard on people understanding that we were happy to enforce the mandates uh, when they existed, because that's absolutely our responsibility to do so. Yeah. Anything to add? I'm, I'll be curious about airplanes and when that um, if that and when that changed my last flight a couple weeks ago, the guy next to me, the, the flight attendant noticed the guy next to me was wearing a mesh mask, which is uh, kind of an anti-mask thing. Yes. And he actually made it's a sarcastic change. mask. The sarcastic mask. Was it, was it one of the ones that was manufactured locally? I think there's a company out in the Kitsap Peninsula. That's I there. couldn't tell. I didn't see the tab right. on. I know what you're referencing. Um, and so uh, he, he did change, but it's a weird thing. You know, I know the ventil, you know, the air circulation is really good on planes, but I mean, we were a foot and a foot apart, our faces, a foot and a half apart. You know, you don't choose that. Um, so I, I, uh, that one, I'm, I'm much more comfortable go walking into a restaurant and being able to pick what table I sit in and if it's near a window or whatever and have some some autonomy versus a, a plane. That one's more nerve wracking just on a straight up personal level. Yeah. The airplane mask rule got extended this week until somewhere in April, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. University of Washington goes mask optional March 28th, even though some colleges are holding off because spring break is might spread COVID around some more. I did see regarding UW, the cherry blossoms on the quad are going to be at peak bloom by about the third week in March. And this year they're saying 
sure, come on in person again, because in the past they've asked you, please, please do the Blossom Cam. Um, but now uh, that's, that's, a, that's a, nice little, a nice little sign for some of us, unless it's a terrible sign uh, if you're really distressed about uh, masks coming down. But that's at least outside on the quad. Um, li- you're listening to Week in Review on KUOW, and we're talking with public publicolist Paul Kiefer here and GeekWire's Mike Lewis and the New York Times' Karen Wise. Uh, this week, the uh, you were mentioning, Mike. You were talking about a, a it was Jacksonville coming here for a for a football game. Um, sports came up in the news this week because the Seahawks traded their star quarterback away, which doesn't happen that much. It was a well surprise to some people. And Paul, I wasn't, I didn't know why local folks were so upset, but maybe it's because they've gotten used to Russell Wilson scanning their boarding passes. I did not know that he that he did that. It's the only time I've ever met. I think I met maybe two local celebrities, maybe. So I guess that, that I would be lying in that first sentence. But um, it was it was uh, completely unexpected. I think I was, I don't know where I was flying to, and there was no announcement ahead of time. Um, it just so happened that there was a, a person who was very clearly not a flight attendant scanning boarding passes at uh, the domestic departures gate uh, at, at SeaTac, and it was Russell Wilson. I think he had, he had just come to Seattle. Um, Perfectly pleasant guy. I don't think I exchanged any words with him, but it, you know, he was just, you know, beep boop, scanning regular <laughs> boarding boop. passes. That's yeah, what you and he's, want. you know, yeah, and he's and he's been making regular appearances at Seattle Children's, you know, every Tuesday, I think, for years now. Mm-hmm. Um, visit visiting the kids who are in long term care. I mean, I think he's done a good job of kind of doing. It's a it's his job as a performance. You know, he has to perform being loyal to the city that he works in because that's part of the job description. And I think he's done a very good job of it. But it's just a job, and you know, it, it people switch jobs all the time. I don't I don't begrudge him anything. <laughs> yeah, that was about my reaction. And uh, Mike, you were you made a good point about the the athletes that we embrace here in Seattle, not necessarily what you think is our type. Yeah, Russell Wilson's a bit enigmatic to me because he's always seemed like a good guy. But there's always been this weird sheen of is he being sincere or not yeah. uh, in that whole very carefully calibrated. I mean, he does. He is known in the sports world for some of the most profoundly boring interviews uh, in in Seattle sports history. Right. And so, and and but then the people really embrace the the folks like Marshawn Lynch and Richard Sherman and Gary Payton and the people who are much more, you know, noisy and aggressive, but feel I think a little more genuine, and it feels. The thing that strikes me is that the, I think the people, the athletes, the people in Seattle get the most passionate about are the ones who are not that reflection of the so-called Seattle nice, if you believe that. They're kind of the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's kind of interesting. And Russell Wilson certainly is like the personification. If there is such a thing as Seattle nice, uh, Russell Wilson is absolutely the, the poster child for it. We're not going to spend, some of our listeners said basically, please don't spend too much time on Russell Wilson and Karen. We were talking, you were saying, eh, I don't have much to add here, right? Okay, oh, yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> okay. Uh, I just want to say, I, I liked, maybe similarly, I liked uh, Russell Wilson because he made one of the most disastrous plays in NFL history, that Super Bowl interception. And he didn't seem as bothered by it as everybody else was. He said, as soon as it happened, I was thinking about the next chance I'm going to get, which is actually how I think sports are supposed to be. But it, sure. but it, but it's just so, so uh, yeah. What, what was the word you used? Um yeah, so blandly positive, but I kind of believed it from him. I, he really seemed like he had that mindfulness, you know, let's do this again next time, guys, which I appreciated. Um, finally, I I did ask, uh, because you were talking about 
athlete's personalities and Seattle's personality. Like, would you really want to be friends with Russell Wilson or Gary Payton? It's a very different choice. So I asked listeners to 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 who would they want to be friends with among Seattle athletes? And Cindy wrote in and said Tyler Lockett from the Seahawks, who I've actually heard of because he's a really, really good receiver. And I didn't know that, that Tyler Lockett writes poetry. Is it true I could chase my dream or am I wasting my time? Should I go and make it happen or just wait for a sign? A lot of people say they wait until they hear words from God. But I feel like God just waits for us to decide if we're going to live it or just think it. But life's got to be more than trying to dream it. So tell me what's after when we achieve it. Tyler Lockett at a news conference there telling the sports reporters that poetry helps him keep his head right. and allows me to simplify everything from everything that started whenever I decided to play this game in the first place. And so I don't get caught up in, like, the glory. I don't get caught up in, like, the money. I don't get caught up in the... The everybody liking me and everybody praising me. It, it takes me back to that place where I can center my focus and focus on my faith and what got me here. So now I don't want Tyler Lockett to leave the Seahawks. And then, and this is this is our community fo- uh, feedback club, by the way, that KOW uh, gathers. Lauren wrote in and said that the Seattle Sounders' Raul Rui Diaz, who's another great player, has this Instagram full of him being goofy, lip syncing with his daughter. <laughs> So you can't see it there, of course, but he's he's having fun and being silly. And then Sue Bird of the Storm came up a lot among our listeners, along with Megan Rapino of The Rain. Megan Rapino is hilarious, even when she's just standing next to a teammate badgering her. I wouldn't say it so many times you wouldn't just pass me the ball. You're not passing the ball, so I'm continuing to say yes, 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 I'm still open. <laughs> so there's some Seattle athletes who, unlike Russell Wilson, uh, keep it loose and, and, and have a little fun. Any final things to say about uh, Seattle Seahawks, star quarterbacks, or otherwise? Go Broncos. I want, Ichi- I want Ichiro back. He was the local hero we all needed. Right. Is he coming back? He didn't love Seattle either, did he? They say they love Seattle. I don't know if Russell Wilson really loved us. I'm starting to I'm starting to question that. Okay, we're talking week in review. We've got, believe it or not, more news to cover. We're going to take a short break and come right back and continue on the show. Don't go away. This is Bill Radke looking on my computer screen, as you can do on YouTube or Facebook and uh, watching the live stream. You search KUOW's Public Radio, and uh, and you'll get Week in Review. This week with Karen Wise of The New York Times, Paul Kiefer of Publicola, and Mike Lewis of GeekWire. And this week, Seattle's mayor, Bruce Harrell, and his police force have been continuing their new approach to crime hotspots, making more than a dozen felony arrests and promising more. The first step to ensuring safety has to be stabilizing the area, shutting down criminal behavior and resetting norms. The city's focusing especially on the areas of 3rd and Pine and 12th and Jackson. Mayor Harrell says he is stepping up enforcement, but also listening to groups that want restorative justice. I do not believe in a racialized or militarized approach to anything that we do. But at the end of the day, everyone has to feel safe. The children. The people in wheelchairs, the, the, the shoppers, the employees and employers, everyone has to feel safe. Meanwhile, on the visible homeless front, not the same as the issue of crime, but often conflated, the city of Seattle is also 
uh, planning to clear another encampment this morning. I haven't checked in on it this morning, but last I heard near Pike and Pine between 4th and 5th. Uh, so those are a couple of the, the policies of our relatively new mayor. And Paul Kiefer is the police accountability reporter at Publicola. Paul, you've said that the mayor's office is under pressure to act fast on things that can't be solved fast. Exactly. I mean, we've tried the exact same strategy of ramping up uh, police presence to clear and stabilize the intersection many times. I mean, particularly at Third and Pine, we've been doing it since the 90s. Um, We've been doing encampment sweeps for years without adequate shelters to refer people to and knowing full well that most people who get or a lot of people who get shelter referrals won't stay in those shelters anyway because they're uncomfortable congregate shelters where your stuff might get stolen or you'd be separated from your partner that kind of thing um but you know time and time again it winds up the the public outcry about visible homelessness or about the existence of a, a visible um market in stolen goods or drugs uh, spurs people to want to act as quickly as possible or, you know, a series of shootings for people to want to act as quickly as possible. And it generally does work at, you know, reducing violence or visible uh, drug de- like drug sales at the intersection where police are, you know, where police are present. Um, it's only sustainable for a certain period of time. And, you know, as we've seen this time around, within a day of police showing up at Third and Pine, someone got stabbed in their sleep a block away. They survived. But, you know, it, what it effectively accomplishes every time is, is just moving people around, reshuffling people until eventually there's another hotspot a few blocks away that needs to be dealt with. And then you stretch police resources even more thin. Um, it, you know, in the long term, we're looking at, yes, two separate problems that are highly interwoven. There's a housing crisis and then there is simultaneously a, a crisis of addiction. And then there's the third crisis, which is people that don't have um, a reliable source of income, particularly, you know, it, during the pandemic, people who lost access to their social security checks or to EBT because the DSHS offices were closed for so long. Um, those compounding crises take a great deal of time and effort and money to solve, but those solutions take a long time to resolve. And in the meantime, the people who are either, you know, involved in selling drugs, who also probably, you know, in, in many cases are also people who use drugs or the people who are sleeping on a sidewalk across from City Hall have to go somewhere. Um, the jail can't, you know, currently is understaffed and, and is not, you know, isn't a long-term solution to uh, the crisis either because people will get out eventually, often, you know, worse for it. Um, you know, in the long-term, uh, the, one of the things the city will probably have to do is sit down with the people who they're pushing around, you know, the downtown core and on a sort of an individual case by case level, try to figure out what people would need to stabilize. And uh, that hasn't happened so far. And the mayor's office says that they're you know, planning on introducing a social service component to the strategy at some point, but, you know, it has yet to materialize. Um, so, you know, we're just repeating a, an old strategy that, that, shuffles things around in circles well, why are things happening in that order then why are things because you know the <laughs> the process of sitting down with each person who has very high acuity needs you know be it uh, a escalating levels of drug use over the course of the pandemic um for various reasons um you know people use more drugs or use multiple drugs the more trauma they experience um, to you know, kind of cope with the, the day-to-day stresses of being pushed around downtown. Uh, sitting down with someone like that takes time. And in the meantime, you might not be able to um, 
you know, uh, you might not be able to find them every day. So, you know, there's, there is, it is a lengthy process during which they are still visible and during which people will still be complaining about visible poverty or visible homelessness or visible addiction. Um, and those complaints. And in some up, cases, public spaces, yeah. they say they can't use block sidewalks, et cetera. Right, right, right. And so, you know, those things remaining while the city tries to undertake sort of the long game, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to address the underlying crises means that the, the public pressure to fix things as quickly as possible won't go away. Um, it, it winds up being sort of politically tricky to, to do these solutions that take a long time because they're expensive and because in the meantime, things remain visible. Mike, you've said we should expect these policies to continue. Without any question, I mean, it, that was the load-bearing pillar in, in Bruce Harrell's campaign. Uh, it, the, people also forget that this had the starting, the clearing of camps had started uh, under Jenny Durkin, just uh, the last two months of her tenure, and then picked up again when once Bruce had finished his transition and installed people in various capacities, uh, this started picking up in earnest, and most recently a sizable camp down by City Hall. I think that you can expect to see it come back. And I think you can also expect to see some version, maybe codified more into mayor's office policy or city policy of the Compassion Seattle initiative, which was uh, popular, at least from a polling standpoint, but not from a judicial standpoint and got tossed out um, because of the the language in it. The That, I think, was something that um, Bruce Harrell quietly backed, as well as a couple of other council members. And I expect that, and that was, if people don't remember, it was uh, requiring the city to build 2,000 units of shelter, essentially to build shelter, to provide services, but also gave the city sort of the mandate to clear the sidewalks and clear the parks. And that's where, it, that's where the, that's the sort of core of the controversy for the Compassion Seattle uh, initiative. My ex- expectation would be that, that to some degree, the elements of that are going to end up as part of policy from the mayor's office. New York Times, Karen Wise, I know your your beat and your mind is sort of elsewhere, although you're in Seattle. Any uh, any observations no, I mean, here? I think there's this time, part of the time pressure now seems to be both the shootings that have happened, you know, the I mean, that's a lot that happened in a short period. And then also you have this because of the ending of these mandates, you have a lot of office workers returning back to the core. You have technology workers, you have lawyers, you have city city staff, you have everyone that fills those towers starting to come back in, you know, slowly trickle back in. And I think you're going to, assuming the numbers don't flare, I think you will continue to see that. So I think there, there to the extent there was a deadline, it was actually goes back to these these mass mandates and and the the changing guidance on COVID that we've been talking about before. I, I think that's a really good point. And, and on top of that, uh, because everyone, I mean, Zillow has not said that it's bringing people back and Zillow had thousands of people in downtown, but Amazon certainly is and a whole bunch of other places are. And, and I, I think Karen's completely right. The timing is not accidental. A lot of these return to work, uh, three days of work, hybrid models are going to start this summer. And so I think the mayor's office was under a little bit of pressure to uh, set the table for the return to this return to work. But also, if you remember, council member uh, Andrew Lewis also said that he feels like the issues regarding crime in downtown, when there's just more people, when there's more eyeballs out on the street, when there's more witnesses out there, that things tend to will will improve. Now, I'm not sure if this is a a valid uh, policing theory, but that with more more of the population back in downtown, that some of these problems will 
will be uh, to some degree self-correcting. And I'm not sure about that, but, but that's absolutely, I think, part of what they are planning. I think, I mean, I think it is true that in order to stabilize, you know, quote unquote, stabilize an intersection or stabilize a, a block, it, it does help to have foot traffic again. I think that is more possible in downtown than it is at 12th and Jackson. I mean, 12th and Jackson is uh, more of a transit point than it is a place that people um, sort of spend time milling around in, you know, to, to socialize. But uh, one way or another, the, you know, even if, you know, several blocks downtown are stabilized by the returning presence of office workers, that still means that, you know, the people who were making an in- income off of selling stolen merchandise or the people who were sleeping on the street or the, the many myriad people who have sort of uh, been at the center of this this sort of public safety crisis or this, this housing crisis, or this addiction crisis, et cetera, won't disappear. They're going to go somewhere. They have to go somewhere. And so, you know, we may see a stabilized third and pine maybe or a stabilized fourth and pike, but that doesn't mean that the crisis has disappeared. It just dissipates. And then there are cascading consequences of that. I, I agree. I mean, it's turning the visible um, homelessness into invisible <laughs> homelessness in some areas. I think you're absolutely right. Before we leave Seattle and law enforcement, because, of course, we'll come back to that in future shows, does anybody want to give any kind of a date when you imagine Seattle, and it's not just Seattle, but local governments having enough shelter where people will want to not just get a referral, but actually stay and and stepped up housing, social services to help people find solutions to their problems. At what point, listeners might want to know, at what point are we going to be saying, well, we're really able to make a dent? I wish I could be that optimistic, but, um, you know, as it as it stands, the thing that people are, that the most people have gotten behind, I mean, the Downtown Seattle Association included, is Just Care, which, you know, provides wraparound services and non-congregate housing to a very small number of people. And even its contract is going to expire this summer and there isn't necessarily a plan yet to renew it. So I I don't think it's fair to put a a date in the future at which we're going to be, you know, reasonably confident that we have enough shelter, non-congregate shelter spaces um, and case managers, et cetera, et cetera, to meet the needs we have because we're, you know, on the verge of potentially going backwards. Okay. Well, I know I know we're going to talk later about uh, the state level budget and legislation. And one thing that did not pass there was zoning and housing reform. Right. And, um, you know, it's an interconnected housing system where um, we have more people than we have places for people broadly to live. And so there is like some pure math that goes into this. Um, that is maybe more like kind of middle income housing, but it's not like that's a separate part of the built environment. I mean, these are these are all interconnected. Yeah, that's a statewide missing middle density proposal that did not pass. Uh, we're, we're coming toward the end of the show. So um, anything that the legislature uh, did get done or notably didn't get done that you want to leave us with as they the legislature wrapped up its session this week? Um, one really notable thing that passed, I think, is uh, the legislature passed a bill that will drastically reduce the legal finan- financial obligations that people who have been convicted of a crime have to pay. It's not a 100% elimination of all LFOs, but um, it means it's, it's retroactive, too, and people can petition a court to have a sizable chunk of their uh, financial obligations waived, whether they're you know in sentencing or in prison or after prison. It's retroactive. That could impact 
thousands of people, you know, eliminate debts that would burden their ability to get back up on their feet. The other really notable thing is a, a bill that will um, that pass that, that will increase pension payouts to law enforcement and firefighters who spent more than 15 years in service, um, which seems minor, but in Seattle, which is trying desperately to hold on to as many officers as possible, I'm told from within SPD that there are a reasonable number of older officers who are we're kind of wagering that they might retire early if this passed. So now that it has passed, you know, do we see a wave of older officers leaving the force when SPD is trying to grow? Huh. You know, that's significant. Yeah. Interesting. Mike, anything to add on legislature before we wrap up? I was actually thinking very much about how the housing initiatives didn't pass. And I think that that is a critical component uh, in housing supply, because even if you're supplying housing at that missing middle, which would people like to use that term, the, mm-hmm. the sort of somewhat affordable housing, um, that then frees up other housing for other folks. So I mean, filling one is filling that end of the, that, that uh, tranche, if you will, of, of the housing need uh, does actually help on the bottom end as well. And none of that moved through at all. And that I thought that was interesting, because I thought that that had a little bit more momentum going in. Finally, we try to leave you something to smile about at the end of the week. Uh, I've always had this routine the last few years. I change the batteries in my smoke detector whenever I see the headline, Congress considering permanent daylight saving time. And it comes up very regularly, So, which is nice. And I've always thought we should do the opposite. We should end daylight savings time permanently. And this week, reporter Tom Bonsi told me I'm not alone. Some businesses agree with me. Those include the golf industry and ski industry, interestingly enough, who have morning people who show up for discounted early tea times or want to make first tracks on the powder uh, first thing in the morning. Never thought of myself as a golf guy, but maybe those are my people. We, we turn out to be simpatico. Anything else worth smiling at to on our way out, team? The Red Apple Grocery Store on Beacon Hill has an amazing pickled stuff section that they do in-house. <laughs> pickled uh, and stuff. And it makes me happy. Yeah, pickled everything. It makes me very happy every time. Oh, nice. Red, pickled apples? Pickled red apples? Uh, pickled okra, pickled carrots, pickled uh, peaches. You know, lovely. it works. Yeah. Anything else? Uh, I went to a movie theater for the first time in better than two years, probably two and a half years. Yeah. Uh, and I went to go see the Oscar-nominated uh, animated short films. Uh, which were terrific, actually completely worth seeing if you see them online or you see them in a movie theater. But I had not been in a movie theater, and I went to the Regal Meridian uh, down across from the Cheesecake Factory off Pike. Yep. And I was shocked at how comfortable the seats are now. It seems like they did some sort of a remodel. It's like sitting in a recliner. But actually, it was nice being in a theater, although I will say there were four of us, and we, we were probably one-third of the entire attendance uh, in the theater. So I don't think that everyone is yet comfortable yet, but I enjoyed my movie theater experience. I wasn't sure when I would be going back. Karen, any smiles? I like the tiny little buds that are on the trees and the plants and the flowers. And maybe after this coming week of rain, I hope for sunshine, maybe. Cherry blossoms coming soon. New York Times tech correspondent Karen Wise, GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis, Publicola police accountability reporter Paul Kiefer. Great to have you as our Week in Review team. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. Have a good weekend. The show is produced by Kevin Kanistat with social media and live streaming assistance from Tio Popescu and Juan Pablo Chiquiza. I'm Bill Radke. Thanks a lot for listening to Week in Review, and let's do this again next Friday.